I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. And we're going to continue with our teaching time together this morning. So this morning, we are um, just coming to the end of a summer series that we've been doing in the book of Second Kings. But the story arc started a long time ago, many summers ago, because really the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings really are one unified story about God's work in and through the Old Testament Hebrew nation of Judah and Israel. So let me give you just a quick summary of where we've been. Um, when we started this story arc, we were in the kingship of David and Solomon, some of the high points of ancient Israel's life, religiously, economically, and in every other way. And then they go through a split. The nation breaks into two, and we have the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom in 931 BC. And in the Northern Kingdom, we have 19 kings and nine dynasties. So if you at some point have felt lost during our King series, you're in good company. There are a lot of things that happen in just that one part of the uh, story arc. And all of those 19 kings, without reservation, are all bad kings. They get failing grades from the writer of Second Kings. And ultimately, the northern kingdom Israel is conquered and people are taken away to Assyria in 722 BC. Now the southern kingdom is named Judah. And the southern kingdom continues to exist after the northern kingdom is decimated. And in the southern kingdom, there's a total of 20 kings. And all of them, with the exception of one, are descendants of David. And it goes for 345 years. And during this time, we have multiple prophets, both named and unnamed, and approximately eight books of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures get written in part or whole during this time. So it's a very busy time in the life of the Old Testament. And so again, if you feel like you, at some point when you open the Old Testament, get a little bit lost or confused or what are we talking about here? Where are we setting ourselves down? You are in good company because it is a little bit confusing. There's just so much happening. But fear not, in order to clear up the confusion, someone somewhere looked at the book of Second Kings and said, you know what would this would make? This would make a good video game. There's just so much happening. And so, have a look at this clip. This is an actual available for purchase video game called The Kings of Israel.
have so many questions about the origins of this and its execution, but this is the actual promotional material from the game. Overwhelmed by hordes of invading nations, a series of corrupt kings, the fate of Israel hangs on a knife's edge. The northern kingdom's only hope is that a group of prophets can band together in the face of evil. The player must use their team of prophets to fight evil within Israel while trying to build the altars needed to win the game. Life will not be easy for the team of prophets. Evil grows at every turn, idols are built, chaos continues as bad kings lead Israel. But if the player plans well and uses their actions and resources carefully, they will prevail and go on to new and more difficult battles. I have so many thoughts about Christian subculture that I do not understand. But though this is an actual card from the game, each prophet may immediately move into any location that contains sin clouds or an idol. I don't know what that means. But one thing that this game highlights for us is that it's very complex set of relationships and people and choices that eventually leads us to the place where we're at today. And that is the end of the line for the people of Judah. Today we're going to talk about an event that shapes the history and defines the people of ancient Israel so significantly that still to this day, its impact is felt in our world. And that is the exile to Babylon. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, if you want to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 24, and we're going to look at how this happened and lessons we can draw from our lives today from the book of Second Kings. And we're going to go quickly through a sequence of bad kings and I want you to listen for the pattern that is repeated in their lives and how they are judged because it's a pattern that's been repeated throughout the book of Second Kings. So last week we looked at King Josiah and Josiah, who became king at age eight, was the last good king to lead the nation. He led the nation in massive religious and spiritual reforms. It says he followed God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so at the end of his life, he made a rash decision to get involved with a major political conflict that was not his. And so Josiah ultimately died in battle with King Pharaoh of Egypt. So then as happens with a monarchy and a dynasty, his son, eldest son came to the throne, Jehoaz. And he's king for a grand total of three months. And then Pharaoh decides, you know what? I don't like how this is going. Drags him off to prison in Egypt and installs his younger brother as king. But 2 Kings 23, 31, assesses his leadership, brief as it is, with the following statement. Jehoaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestors had done. So his brother is put in place to become king. 
And the king's, his brother's name is Jehoiakim. And during this time, it's about a decade, Babylon comes to power as another alternative to the existing powers of Assyria and Pharaoh in Egypt. And Babylon begins to grow in strength and they begin to challenge some of the areas that Egypt and Assyria had conquered and Judah is one of those. And so Babylon is growing stronger and stronger. And in this time, they take over the area of Judah. And Jehoiakim decides he's gonna rebel against Babylon. And when his rule is reflected on in 2 Kings 23, it says Jehoiakim was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned for 11 years, but he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. And so he's deposed and his son comes to the throne, Jehoiachin. This is again where it gets confusing. They name, the names are so similar and then some people are changing their names. So it sounds the same, but Babylon's coming to prominence and they don't take lightly this rebellion of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. And so Jehoiachin, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon comes and takes him and a number of people away and they're exiled to Babylon. And again, the assessment repeats in 2 Kings 24, verses eight and nine. It says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for three months and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father had done. And the final king, just to change it up a little bit, doesn't have a name that starts with J, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is actually Jehoiakim's uncle. And he also is exiled to Babylon because Zedekiah decided let's rebel even more against Babylon. And Babylon came with all of their armies and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem for two years and they set up siege works and the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezra records how bad things got during that time. And finally, after two years, the famine inside the city walls became so severe that the people could not take it any longer and they broke out of the city and tried to run away in the middle of the night. And the Babylonian army captured them and ultimately the people were exiled and sent away to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, as a smart military strategist, decided, you know what? This little group of people has been so rebellious and troublesome, we're going to make sure this does not happen again. And so he instructed his soldiers to set fire to the temple and to the royal palace and to every house of any size in the city of Jerusalem. Every important building was burned to the ground. And then he said to the soldiers, stay here and take apart this wall brick by brick until there's nothing left of this city. And then he said, only leave the poorest people here 
to actually cultivate the land, everyone else were taking away to Babylon. It was finally over for the people of Judah. It's the low point in the history of ancient Israel as it's recorded in the Old Testament. And Psalm 137 is written during this period. And listen to the, just the lament of the loss of country, the loss of relationships, the loss of place and culture and community. Psalm 137 says, beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept as we thought about Jerusalem. We put away our harps hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. Our captors demanded, oh, sing a song for us. Sing a joyful hymn. Sing one of those songs about Jerusalem. And they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord when we're in a pagan land? It's so destroyed their national spirit and their sense of community that for years and years and years after it, they remained a broken and oppressed people. And one of the things to keep in mind as you're reading through the scripture in any point, whether it's Galatians like Katie talked about or whether it's here in Second Kings, is asking why was this written? Why did the author expend the energy under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit to put this into print in some way? And 2 Kings was written during this period of exile, during this period where they've been pushed out from everything that they've ever known, living under oppression in a foreign nation. And it's written back retrospectively looking at it, and it's written to answer the question, why? Why did this happen to us? But see, when, if we were to write a modern history, we have different sets of questions that drive our thinking. But for the writer of Kings, this is a, always a theological question, always about the, their relationship to God. So it's not written in accordance with modern conventions of history. It's not just about politics or how long kings were in power or what the dynasties looked like. It's about what's driving their actions or their inaction. Picture the exiles sitting in Babylon and their neighbors asking them, hey, you Jews talk about your God being so powerful, so how come we overthrew you and you're sitting here? Why did that happen? If your God is so great, or children growing up and asking their parents, how did we end up here? Why can't we go home? It's a legitimate question. And in the book of Kings, particularly in Second Kings, we've seen that in the face of so many things and many choices by individuals and by leaders to walk away from God for hundreds and hundreds of years, God has been merciful. But eventually, the writer of Kings says, if you want to know what happened, these things happened because the Lord's anger against the people of Jerusalem and Judah until he finally banished them from his presence and sent them 
into exile. And really, there's, there's four main lessons for us to take away from the book of 2 Kings. And the one is we have to wrestle with this notion of, is God just really angry at these people? And it's the why question. Why did this happen to them? And the answer that the author gives to us is that this is about infidelity to the covenant that God made with God's people. This is not about arbitrary emotional outbursts by God. See, when we read something like 2 Kings 24 and it says God was angry, we associate that with an emotion. But God, the writer is not saying God got up one morning, was a little bit unstable, hadn't had coffee, and was like, what? Someone's doing something wrong down there? Zap, lightning bolt. That's not what this is about. Second Kings is written, and remember last weekend we talked about how the writer reminded us of the covenant in Deuteronomy all the way back that the people of Israel had made with God. And a covenant is like an ancient version of a written contract that you put your signature to. I was at the bank this week, and I was having a dispute with the bank over some charges that had occurred when I looked at my account. And so they pulled the paperwork, and he laid it out, and he said, do you see right here, is that your signature, sir? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, do you see the, the sentence right above that? I, am re I understand, I am responsible for all of the charges in this account. Please sign here. And he says, that's the contract. You signed it, and so therefore you're responsible for these things. And the contract or the covenant that was made with Israel was very, very clear. In the terms of the covenant were fair. They were outlined and well understood, and Israel effectively signed on for that. They just chose not to honor it. The people chose instead to follow the practices of their pagan neighbors and pursue horrible activities. Things like sacrificing their own children amongst other heinous crimes. But see, in the covenant, when it's renewed under Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23, they're also reminded that there's a blessing for covenantal obedience. All the way back from Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God says, I want to bless you. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, the Lord will establish you as a holy people, as he swore he would do. And then all of the nations of the world will see you are a people claimed by the Lord, and they will stand in awe of you. And then the blessings of the covenant are iterated again and again and again. And then the consequences for disobedience are also outlined in Deuteronomy 28, 64. If you refuse to obey all of the words of instruction written in this book, the Lord will scatter you among the nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship foreign gods, neither you nor your ancestors have known. Gods made of wood and stone, and among these nations you will find no peace or place to rest. 
and the Lord will cause your heart to tremble, your eyesight to fail, and your soul to despair. And over and over again, God sent the prophets to remind the people about the covenant. And so God was not mean and arbitrary and angry. God is simply saying, if you would like to act in that way, I cannot continue to permit that. It's a violation of what it means to be human. It's a violation of what it means to live in right relationship with neighbors and with others. And it's horribly destructive for you and for God's vision for flourishing in the world. It needs to stop. And for hundreds of years, the people went, nah, I don't think so. We're not going to do that. They made some progress under some kings and some prophets, but by and large, it was getting worse and worse and worse, relapsing into significant patterns. And God finally says in loving restraint, enough is enough. I cannot continue to allow you to destroy yourselves and to destroy others in this pattern of living. I'm going to need to fulfill my end of the covenant and that is not to destroy you but to actually just exile you. I'm gonna put you in a timeout. And so exile is God's reasonable response to extreme apostasy. God is not being capricious or mean or angry. God is being just and acting with justice to bring about the known and agreed upon consequences of actions. And so the lesson that for us here is really about how we think about God and how we think about scripture. Because sometimes we attribute things to God that really are more like how we would act as human beings in that situation. And really in these situations, God is responding in mercy and in justice to their actions. And a lot more could and should be said about that. And we're gonna tackle some of that in our fall series uh, in the book of Galatians because it uses Israel and lessons from Israel's life in very specific and helpful ways for us. So the second lesson that we see in the book of Kings is a, a little phrase or axiom or saying that essentially could go something like this. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. And what I mean by this is that those who are at the top of any organization are responsible for setting the tone and the pace and the culture in that thing, whatever it is, whether it's a country or a business or a home. And so leaders set the tone for what's acceptable. And James chapter three, verse one, reminds us then that those who are responsible to provide leadership and to set the tone will be held to a higher standard. Uh, James uh, 3.1, it's actually the name of David McFarlane, who's playing the piano as one of our elders. Uh, it's the name of David's podcast. And it says this, not many of you should become teachers because those who teach will be judged more strictly. David's a teacher, coincidentally. 
In other words, if you know what's right and good, and you're in charge, and then knowing all of that, you intentionally lead people away from what is right and good, your accountability is higher for that action. Here at Jericho, we don't make apologies that we hold people in leadership to a higher standard. Now, does it mean that people in leadership are perfect? Oh no, definitely not. Then we would have zero leaders here at Jericho because uh, no one could get there. But what it does mean is those, especially those in public places of leadership, like our pastoral team members or our elders or visible members of our community that are teaching and leading in ways. So for example, our Kids at the Ridge teachers or our worship team members or our youth sponsors, we expect them to set an example by their lives for God-honoring conduct because they're in a place of leadership. And we want their words, especially if you think about the words to the songs that we sing, we want their lives to be consistent and congruent and aspirationally saying, I want these things to be true of me. And it doesn't mean that we expect everyone to be perfect by any mean, but it does mean that we expect those who are leading others to set an example and to set the pace in their lives. And over and over again in the book of 2 Kings, we see that the kings are reminded, hey, this is your job, king. You are to lead the nation in a way that is congruent with God's heart. And it simply did not happen. Well, they were providing leadership all right, but the leadership that they were providing is expressed by 2 Chronicles 36. Chronicles is a parallel book, 2 Chronicles to 2 Kings. And it says this, Likewise, all the leaders of the priests and all of the leaders of the people became more and more unfaithful. They followed all the pagan practices as their surrounding nations. They desecrated the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated in Jerusalem. All of the leaders, religious, civic, were leading people away from God and toward worshiping things that are not gods, idols. Now, you might hear something like that and say to yourself, and that is actually really good news, Brad, because what that means is the leaders here at Jericho are responsible, and I'm not responsible then. I'm off the hook for my spiritual growth and development or for how things happen around here. And that's, don't hear what I'm not saying. That's not what this is about. It does not absolve you and I of individual responsibility before God. It would be better to think about it in terms of saying everyone is responsible, but leaders are more responsible. Or there's another layer because of their depth of knowledge and the scope of their influence, their level of accountability is different. And that's true of many, many places. It's not just true of the church. It's true of a school and a classroom. If you're a teacher, parents, this is true in your home. When it comes to faith development and passion for God, speed of the parents, speed of the child. If your kids don't see you pursuing some 
development in your relationship with God. And so, let me challenge you to reflect today, what is the example that you are setting for those around you in your life and in your conduct? If people were following you, would you be leading them toward Jesus? If they patterned their lives after you, if they organized their calendar like your fall calendar, if their priorities reflected your priorities, would that reflect the heart of Jesus? And would people be led deeper into a relationship with Jesus? What is the example that you and I are setting for people around us? So that's the second lesson from the book of Kings. And the third lesson from the book of Kings comes to us uh, in the last two chapters in the four Kings we've looked at today, and that is this, that it's never too late to repent until it's too late to repent. So reflecting on the story of the people of Israel, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter three, make sure your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. You have to warn each other while it is still called today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened in your hearts against God. Today, when you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. See, this theme of hardness in our hearts comes up a lot in the scripture. It's the notion that if I have a soft heart, I'm still able to hear and respond to God and to God's spirit. But if my heart is hardened through sin or through unbelief, then, or repeatedly turning away from God, I can easily live in a place where I don't feel things because, not on an emotional level, but nothing penetrates the hardness of my heart. As God's word is read, as you engage with it, it just doesn't go in because in the parable, Jesus tells the soil is hard and so the seed can't take root. Or uh, another way to think about this uh, might be like this. Years ago, my mom uh, plays the guitar. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I'm gonna learn to play the guitar. You don't have to turn this on, by the way. So in my learning to play the guitar, I learned two chords. I figured out if you can play two chords, you can play at least one song and most delirious songs, actually. If you can play three chords, you can play most worship songs, just so you know. But the two chords I learned were C and then G7. So those two chords, then you can, you can um, do the song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Oh, I did hands. There we go, right? So you can tell after I did that for a little bit, I went to my mom and said, mom, I learned two chords, but I don't think I wanna play the guitar anymore. And she said, why? 
I said, it hurts my fingers. She said, well, yeah, the strings are metal. And so you have to keep pressing through that. And over time, what you develop as you play the guitar more is calluses on your fingers. So your fingers become callous, so you don't feel the string pushing into your tender little fingers in the same way. And it's the same thing that is true here when it comes to hardness of heart. If your heart has calluses on it, when you do something repeatedly that's wrong, you become numb to it eventually. Whether it's playing the guitar, whether it's harboring secret sin in your life, or in the case of the ancient Israelites, multiple public and prolific sins, oppressing the poor, injustice, running rampant, sacrificing their own children, walking away from and refusing to trust God. They did these things over and over and over and over again for 345 years until God finally said, your hearts are so hard, the only solution to this is exile. We cannot continue to permit this to go on because they were doing it and their hearts were so hard they did not even notice and feel that they were calloused anymore. And the same thing is true in your life and in mine. I know I have areas in my life, areas of weakness and areas of sin that when I step into them again and again and again, over time, I can justify them and say, you know what, it's not that bad. It's not really hurting anyone. No one else will find out about it or know. It's not a big deal. When you begin to tell yourself things like that, you're developing a harder and more calloused heart. Beware, be careful. When we continue to live that way, we're numb and it impacts our walk with God and our relationships with other people. And so one of the continuous things that uh, can be a healthy Christian practice is a practice of confession, where you come to God and say, God, I'm open to you searching my heart, Psalm 51. Look inside of me, God. Is there anything in my life that I need to pay attention to? And so consider today how soft or how calloused and hard is your heart? Are there areas of your life that need repentance? And the good news is that according to the writer of Hebrews, if you're still listening to this, then there's still time to repent because God's still giving you today. And so today is the moment of repentance and salvation. And maybe for you, you've never come to that place in your life. And you've said, you know what, I've just pushed God away for many, many years. But you feel and you know something is stirring inside of you. And today is the day for you to say yes to God and become part of God's family. We have people that would love to pray with you at the back. Don't leave today without making that decision and saying, you know what, I do want to step into that place of relating to God in a fresh and new way. Give me a clean and pure and soft heart, God. God can take hearts that are stony and completely unresponsive and change it for a heart of love and grace and compassion and mercy because of what Jesus has done. And so that's 
the process of repentance. And one of the reasons that the book of 2 Kings was, re was written was to give us an example of what happens when we don't pursue that pathway and a warning to us not to follow them down that pathway. And so the final lesson that comes to us from the book of 2 Kings and from the very last two verses of chapter 25 is a little bit of an epilogue. After all of the horrors of the exile, the city burned, the wall torn down, the people dragged off into exile, we get this little picture that God is still at work and God is still faithful and God is still keeping God's promises. Even in the darkest times, God is stirring up hope. You might uh, remember the King Jehoiachin, the second to last king, he got dragged away right to Babylon, Babylon and is in exile. And after living there for 37 years in 2 Kings 25, a new king comes to the throne in Babylon and this king was kind to Jehoiachin, released him from prison and spoke kindly to him, gave him a higher place than all of the other exiled kings in Babylon. And he supplied Jehoiachin with new clothes to replace his prison garb and he allowed him to dine in the king's presence for the rest of his life. So the king gave him a regular food allowance as long as he lived. Bit of a funny end to the book. But what the writer wants us to see is that even in this time of darkness, God is still at work and there is still hope. Remember, God promised to bring about the salvation of the world through the line and the family of David. And so here, even in exile, God is keeping David's family alive and protected and rescued as part of his plan of redemption. And if you're ever in the city of Berlin in Germany and you go to the Pergamon Museum, go and look for a little stone tablet that was discovered by archaeologists in their excavation of ancient Babylon. And it actually gives the exact list of favorable rations given to Jehoiachin in this time of exile. Because God was still interested in bringing about the salvation of the world through the line of David, even in exile. God was committed to his promise of rescue and redemption. And that part of the story we'll pick up next summer. But for now, I'm gonna ask Ruth Ellen and our worship and song team to come, and we're going to respond together. And we're gonna respond through a time of communion. And here at Jericho, our practice of communion, those who are serving can make their way to the tables. Our practice here at Jericho is to open the table up and we have a gluten-free option and then regular option for you. And so as we respond in sung worship, whenever you feel that you're ready, you can make your way to the table. There's one at the side and one over at this side and you can take the bread which represents Jesus' body broken for you that you would be able to live in freedom and the cup that represents Jesus' blood poured out for you that you could experience wholeness. And as we do that, we're making a declaration of God's faithfulness to you and to us as a people. 
And so I'd invite you, uh, if you'd like to stand, you're welcome to do that. Uh, if you want to take time to worship and just by sitting or by kneeling, you're more than welcome to do that as well. And Ruth Ellen and the team will lead us in several songs of response. Just make your way to the communion table and then come back and participate uh, just at your seat. And you may stand or sit as you feel. And whenever we do this, we are remembering that even when we fail, Jesus is merciful and kind and that God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So let's stand together and let's pray. God, your saving work was evident in the lives of the people of Israel, even though they resisted you and walked away from you. And you are still about that work in the world today of rescuing and redeeming lives that are broken, people that are far from you. And so God, today in this place, as we celebrate communion and the work of your son Jesus on the cross, we declare yet again that that work was sufficient to bring us into right relationship with you. All of our past, all of our frailty, all of our sins were dealt with and paid for by you on the cross, Jesus. And so we receive this with gratitude and with thanksgiving. And we declare also that we, re we love you and we desire for you to respond and send us out into the world as ambassadors of your love. Clean us up, God. Fill us up. Send us out. We respond in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together. <laughs>